I want to remind you of the um, meditation that's in the bulletin, again, keeping with our theme from Michael Williams, who says, uh, the future to which we aspire shapes our attitudes and decisions in the present. It's important to know where we're headed, for it tells us how to live now in the present. To live responsibly in the present requires that we be acquainted with our future end. And so that's what I wanted us to look at on this first Sunday of the year uh, from Hebrews 13, where it talks about the, the city to come. And so uh, please listen or follow along. Our text from Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 8 through 17. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those serve those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is a passage, I added uh, verse 8 at the beginning here, um, our passage this morning, beginning in verse 9, uh, takes place in the context of the very famous verse that I added that says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is good news for us because it means that uh, changing times, uh, troubling times, circumstances, unforeseen developments, which we've had plenty of lately, um, ongoing wars, pandemics, or anything else, none of that affects or casts doubt on the person and work of Christ. And uh, theologians call this the immutability of Christ. Mutable means to change, and immutability is the unchanging nature of Christ. And so, um, the text we're looking at especially, verse 9, uh, would naturally follow that idea that if Jesus is the same, then don't get enticed and don't get led away by something new or strange. And that's exactly uh, what was happening. Uh, the new Hebrew Christians were being enticed and even beguiled uh, by doctrines alien to the gospel. And this would be in line with, uh, we didn't read it, but back in chapter 5 in Hebrews verse 11, 
the writer has said that they had become, quote, dull of hearing, unquote. So the fact that they were considering such things, you know, abandoning, leaving, shows their immaturity and uh, instability and their need to be reminded of the perfect constancy of Jesus Christ. So don't be led away, don't be carried off, off course by teachings that are, uses two words, the teachings that are diverse and strange. Diverse has the, the connotation of a, a number, a lot of them, and strange talks about the content or the meaning of all of these diverse things. It's true, isn't it, that even today um, there are lots of erroneous ideas about who Jesus is and what he did. And someone said there are a lot of Jesuses out there. And theologians tell us that there are more heresies th throughout church history concerning Jesus than, than there are um, any other area of theology. There's lots of questions to answer. Um, was his virgin birth literal or figurative? And what's the relationship and the meaning of the union, called the hypostatic union, of his two natures, God and man? How does that work? Lots of wrong teaching on that. When did his humanity start? If he had no sin, why was he baptized? What was the nature of his atoning death? Is he just a moral example of try to be like Jesus? Or is there more? Yes, there's more. He's our savior, not just our moral example. What's the extent of his atonement? Um, for whom did he die? All humans literally or just the elect? And on and on, lots of uh, questions to be answered. And most heresies throughout church history have to do with errors in Christology. The different creeds of the Christian faith, we just did the Apostles' Creed. If you look at them, um, devote a lot of content to detailed facts about Jesus. Joel Osteen teaches a false Christology by implication. I heard him say this, implication if not directly. He says he doesn't mention sin because it just depresses people. And God never intended for his children to be depressed, and so he does not talk about sin. Well, that's heretical Christology, because if sin is out of the picture, then you've already gutted out half of the reason why Jesus came. Half of his work was sin-bearer, and then the other half was producer of righteousness for us. But if you leave out the sin part, you only have righteousness to talk about, so he's only our moral example, try to be righteous as an example of how to be good. No need for atonement because of no sin. This, this idea of atonement for sin is, is really central and core to Christianity. I don't think they do this in the grocery stores anymore. Do you remember? I think it was especially... I remember Campbell's soup, but they would build a um, pyramid circle, cone-shaped can, stacking the cans less and less, and they finally got to the 
<clears throat> the one on the top, well, they quit doing that, uh, probably because of kids like me who would reach down and get the bottom can and pull it, and the whole thing would fall, or most of it. Well, that's what happens when you try to take atonement for sin out of Christology, the whole thing collapses in on itself. Another example would be the um, Roman Catholic Church that I was raised in regarding purgatory. And they said that's a place that's just short of hell where non-mortal sins, they have mortal serious sins and venial not-so-serious sins, and if you die with mortal sin, you go to hell. But if, if you only die with a venial sin, you go to this place called purgatory where those non-mortal sins can be purged by friends and family still on the earth who pay indulgences or light candles and thereby tap into something called the treasury of merit. And the treasury of merit were the, the saints, the super good among us, who did more than was necessary for their own salvation, and their good works were stored up into, I used to think of it as a barn silo, and um, you could buy some of that for grandma, um, buy indulgences, and it just didn't make sense to me. And that Roman church view does say, they would say, Joel Osteen is wrong because there is sin, and we've got to talk about it, but how it's dealt with is wrong. This is telling us all through the scriptures, the sin atoning work of Christ is complete. He gets you all the way out of hell and all the way to heaven without any outside help from priests or so-called saints, however well-meaning they may be. This all troubled me um, as a teenager growing up in the Catholic Church, and I struggled with my faith and what was going on, and purgatory just did not make sense to me. I re remember being at funerals, and say it was grandma, and she, we all knew um, she had a bad temper, and she also had that stash of bourbon, and uh, she never, of course, never murdered anyone or robbed a bank, so we were told she's probably in purgatory. Not hell, but certainly not heaven, because it had been three or four months since she went to confession before she died, and this all just confused me greatly. So what does all of that imply about Jesus' saving work in the life of believer? In, of a believer, much. Or Judaism says there's a Messiah, yes, Messiah foretold in the Old Testament, but Jesus wasn't it. For them, the Messiah is still coming. Or Jehovah's Witnesses say in Hebrews 1, it says, they would say that Jesus was a son of God, not the son of God they changed their translation to fit that. So how does all of this apply to us today? 
What I'm trying to say is it's possible to get all the, the doctrine right regarding Jesus, but still live as if it isn't so. That Paul struggled with doing things he shouldn't do and not doing things he should and so on. So think about it for a minute, if you would, brainstorm a minute. What, what was it, does this look like for us today? Well, any number of believers have anger, jealousy, uh, gossiping, passivity in the faith, lack of zeal, a weak prayer life. Maybe we don't cheat on our spouses, but run a full-out mental harem sometimes. We are nice enough talking to our Christian friends, but you cut me off in traffic, and that's a different story, is it not? So the writer is saying, stick with Jesus and don't chase after other doctrines. We, we have little, these little, these doctrines that might have little or nothing to do with why he came, that of being our better sacrifice, the book of Hebrews is, is telling us. Now they were being tempted to go back to the old Jewish sacrificial system because following Jesus, they found out, had, had led to too much suffering, at least they thought. So be reminded, the writer says, that the thing that you're contemplating leaving is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't abandon him for all the other many strange, untrue uh, Jesus substitutes out there. And so to help them with that, he has them think about the difference between being strengthened by grace on the one hand or by being strengthened by foods, as he calls it, adding that um, food sacrifices did not benefit the ones who used that system of offering food or of pleasing and appeasing God. It did, did not work, does not actually work. And the next verses define what foods he's talking about. And this is interesting to me. He refers to verses in Leviticus. We won't read it, but you're likely familiar with it about how um, the priests, the Levitical priests, had a right after the service to take home and eat for personal consumption meat and food that was left over from the sacrifices. He could do that. On the yearly day of atonement, though, that meat was taken outside the city and completely burnt up such that there was none left to take home and eat. And the writer, by mentioning this, is drawing a parallel to Christ when he says, we have an altar from which the Old Testament priests don't get any leftover meat. We have an altar that doesn't have to do with foods. And there was none of that, Jesus' sacrifice, there was none of that left over. It was fully consumed by the fire of God. Jesus was fully sacrificed. In other words, there's no sin of God's people that was not atoned for on the altar of the sacrificial death of Jesus. And this idea of an altar... Is, is really an important concept to get here because it's, it's the place of sacrifice and the main point has to do with 
how we are put right with God, and that somehow happens on this altar. And there's a verse that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or putting away of sin. And the altar is where that takes place. And verse 10 is saying, we as believers in Christ have an altar that's not in a physical temple or a tent somewhere, but a much more real and effective one before God's throne in the real holy of holies in heaven. So we need to catch this, what he's saying, while, while the writer is saying that the, one, the altar in the temple or the tent is ineffective now and therefore useless in effecting salvation, he is saying that, but he's not therefore saying there is no altar at all. There is one. We have this expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't just throw out the idea that altar's no good. Therefore, all, therefore no altar. No. <clears throat> if it helps to think in physical terms, then the real altar is the cross. But still, the greater spiritual reality is what that sacrificial death on the cross accomplished before God. Some traditions today, like the Roman church that I grew up in, still have altars in their churches. I was an altar boy. I always thought that was a funny phrase, an altar boy. I was the tallest, and so I was the one that held the, the pole with the cross on it and led the pr procession on holy days. But that's not what verse 10 is talking about, even though the Roman church uses this text to justify having altars and masses. The cross was the last altar because after making atonement there, as Hebrews tells us four different places, he sat down, meaning it's finished. And another thing I noticed growing up in the, the Roman church is that all their crosses or crucifixes, they were in each classroom, um, every home, all over the churches, uh, even on jewelry. On all of them, Jesus is still on those crosses. And as the mass is performed each day, Christ is, as it were, re-sacrificed again and again, such that he can't seem to finally and fully get off the cross. But here, the writer tells us the good news that we have an altar from which the priests have no right to eat. There's no part of the sacrifice left over such that the Old Testament priest could take it home and eat it later for supper. It's because all sacrificial work is done. And any sacrifice that remains now is what verse 15 says, we bring the sacrifice of praise. What remains now is rejoicing and thanksgiving and praise. So as it were, there's a big closed sign hanging on the Old Testament altar, and there's a big open for business sign on the altar of praise in heaven before God. And so apparently um, the detractors at the time were telling them, these new Christians, that um, Christianity is ineffective because it had no altar. 
No, we do indeed have an altar. It's the empty cross, and we regularly bring the sacrifice of praise to our Father in heaven because of it. We need to move on and add something else here. We learn more about ha what happened when we study this phrase that keeps coming up um, outside the camp <clears throat> or outside the gate. What does that mean? Well, if it says camp, it's referring to the Old Testament exodus, the wanderings in the desert and the camp that moved with the people and the Holy of Holies inside it. That's the camp idea. And when it says gate, that jumps to the New Testament, as it were, and is talking about Jerusalem or the gate of the city. And he uses them interchangeably, but it's the same thing, same idea. So the animals slaughtered on the Day of Atonement were carried outside the camp, according to Leviticus 16, and were completely burned. The campground was holy ground, but the ground outside the camp was unholy ground. So ceremonial cleansing was required before a man returned to the camp from the outside. And this is all laid out in Leviticus 16 and explained. Well, the author of Hebrews says it's significant, verse 12 in our text, that Jesus did that too. That he also suffered outside the gate, now talking about the gate of the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was bounded by walls, and that corresponds to the holy ground of the wilderness camp with its boundaries. And so Jesus goes outside the city gate onto unholy ground and makes a total sacrifice of himself. And this would have just shocked them no end for the Hebrews to hear that he did this, verse 12, quote, in order to sanctify them through his own blood, unquote, precisely on this unsanctified territory. And the whole idea must have seemed strange and self-contradictory to them. Calvary, outside the city, was a place of defilement, not sanctification. And <clears throat> back in chapter 7 verse 26 says Jesus was God's holy one. So they've just heard that. So the presence of the holy one made holy what was previously unholy and injects a whole new perspective into this. Jesus, the holy one, went to the place of unholiness outside the camp to redeem unholy people like you and me. Because that's where we are before Jesus finds us. Just a bit more explanation here. The Old Testament Levitical passage describes this holy camp of the wilderness people, and to leave that camp, even in the performance of holy duties, like burning up Day of Atonement meat, that would render a man unclean and would exclude him from the holy fellowship. And here the writer of Hebrews, however, says... The sacrifice of Jesus was performed outside the holy place, and it is that sacrifice which sanctifies or makes holy his people. This is huge because Jesus' work now marks the removal or the abolishing of the necessity of holy places anymore. 
for rites of sanctification. This is even more good news. Churches are good places, but they aren't holy in this sense. Just by setting foot inside this building doesn't make you holy. Spending time in a garage no more makes you a car than spending time in a church makes you holy. It's something that happens outside. So there are no more special, secret, holy, magic places as the people had begun to think or were thinking for a long time. So think about what this means. Jesus identifies himself with the world in its unholiness. While we're unable to draw near to God because of our sin, God draws near to us in the person of his Holy One who, on our unholy ground, meets us and makes his holiness available to us in exchange for our sin, which he now bears and for which he atones on the cross, the real altar. Through the shedding of his blood on Calvary, outside the gate, he sanctifies his people. He makes us holy. And remember, by the way, we're using the word sanctify as it's often used in Hebrews to mean rendering acceptable to God, making holy, not really referring to the um, concept of sanctification, but it's talking about removing defilement and guilt, setting us apart as holy unto the Lord, we who by our sin alienated ourselves from God. Well, it's hard for us to imagine what this meant uh, to the original readers. This was a complete break from the old Jewish order of their upbringing, from their dependence on the Levitical system. They knew it well. They knew and loved the priesthood with feasts and sacrifices, and they all had great hopes for a new glorious city of Jerusalem, but that is all now being dashed by what they're hearing. And Moses was called to have the people leave Egypt and its civilization, and now here they're being called and urged to turn their backs on Sinai and the earthly Jerusalem. <clears throat> uh, one writer named, a uh, commentator named Westcott uh, says there, and this is a quote, they're being asked to withdraw from Judaism, even in its first and purest shape, it had been designed by God as a provisional or temporary system, and its work was done, unquote, end quote. Though maybe it's not so hard for us, after all, to imagine uh, what they were going through. Have you ever had an experience Maybe a crisis, often a crisis of some kind, has that ever revealed to you that what you were trusting in, that you were trusting in a system or an idea that seemed to give support and meaning to life, but in fact it wasn't? We need to be reminded again that the security of earthly cities, um, establishments, institutions, however religious they may be, or an illusion. In fact, it's a severe mercy of God if he removes any non-Jesus support planks in our lives, and it's actually good for us for that to happen, however painful it might be. The history of Judaism had already shown them 
that even Jerusalem, the, the city of God with its magnificent temple dedicated to the glory and worship of God, all of that was destructible, temporary. And soon enough, in 70 AD, it would be destroyed again. So it was of the utmost importance that these new Hebrew Christians learn verse 14 very well, that here on this earth, we have no lasting city. They really wanted what they wrongly thought was the security of the holy camp or the holy city of Jerusalem with its temple. And they were tempted to even to reject and isolate themselves from all that reproach and shame that came from the cross outside the city that they loved and trusted so much. They were tempted to go back to the system which Christ's coming made obsolete. And so, mark it again well today. Brothers and sisters, this is not our home. We have a better address, do we not, than the one in whatever county tax records your address is right now. We have a better address. The one in the tax records is just your temporary address. All your mail will ultimately be forwarded somewhere else, capital S, somewhere. Because as Peter says, 1 Peter 2, we are aliens and sojourners and just passing through. Might help you to think about it a little bit. Someone said this to me once. Uh, do you think of your house, the place you live right now, your residence, do you think of your house more as a tax shelter or a weather shelter? So what do you mean? And well, if you think of it as a tax shelter, you're in the category of thinking of um, increasing value. Uh, you're going to get a bigger house when this one can sell for more in the right neighborhood, in the better school district, and that's all for your house. That's, that's tax shelter thinking for your house. Or is it a weather shelter? And this is an overstatement, but it helps you think about it. Or do you just, do you just think you should be thinking, he was saying, this person, of your house as a weather shelter? It's just a place where you go in from the weather and you sleep and eat and rest so that you can go out again and do ministry. And it's quite a different view of our house, of our homes. And so Peter and the writer of Hebrews saying we are aliens and sojourners and just passing through. So no, we don't have a lasting city on this earth. But we do have a city. It's just not on this earth. Like before, uh, he said we no longer have or need or use the Levitical altar but don't think for a minute we have no altar at all. In the same sense, here, he says we have no city. Lowercase c, small c, but we have a city, capital C, uppercase, verse 14b, we seek the city that is to come. And this is not some hypothetical, indefinite city, something that floats around, kind of undefined, something made of vague optimism, but the city, one that is real and assured, a Hebrews 11.1 city. <clears throat> what do we mean by that? Well, 
and joining Christ crucified outside the gate, we're not separating ourselves from reality, we're separating ourselves to reality, a reality which alone is ultimate and eternal. And this city is described in, back in chapter 11, verse 1, we're looking forward to the city which has real foundations, whose builder and maker is God, seeking a homeland, a better country that is a heavenly one. And so verse 15, through Jesus, not the defective, temporary, incomplete, non-lasting Levitical system, but through him, let us offer true sacrifices now, sacrifices of praise, because that's all that remains to be done. All the work of atonement is done. It's all over but the shouting. Supposedly a winning coach uh, said that. Um, meaning that even though some seconds were still left on the clock, they were so far ahead that the other side could never score in time. And so it was all over except for the victory shouts in 20 more seconds. That's where we live, according to verse 15. The work of Christ has won it all for us. We're aliens and sojourners and just passing through for a little while longer. And so we spend our time praising him for what he's done. It's all over but the shouting. Clo trying to close now. Um, no notice the end of verse 16. These sacrifices of praise are pleasing to God. Gratitude for the gospel is the motivating force of the life of a believer. This is the only incense that's pleasing to the nostrils of God. It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Unlike the thank offerings in the Old Testament, this sacrifice of praise requires no eating or presenting of food, isn't regulated by some outward ceremony. Rather, it breaks forth spontaneously from within, through the lips. Praise like this cannot be silenced by threats and persecution. A few years back, Christians beheaded by ISIS said just before their death, as they were kneeling there with a sword over their necks, just before their death, they, they praised God for the opportunity to say his name as they died, to say it, to speak it. So as we start a new year, uh, let's remember that we're seeking the city to come. The forwarding address order has already come through. Uh, Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, has filled it out for us, written in red. And so really, what more do we need? Let's pray. So Father in heaven, uh, help us on this first Lord's Day of a new year to reset our affections on Christ who went outside the gate looking for us. Thank you beyond words that he found us. We look forward to seeing you with unveiled face in the new Jerusalem, the city to come. And while we remain here on Jordan's stormy banks, we do cast a wishful eye towards the promised land where our true possessions lie. And so encourage us anew again this day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.